The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We're broadcasting live from the Commonwealth's 2023 National Financial Advisors Conference. We're at the Gaylord Rockies Resort in Aurora, Colorado, a world-class water park. I will report for those that are into the water park thing. Um, what we're doing here, there's a lot of registered investment advisors here. People manage money for others. Uh, and they gather here uh, along with uh, their platform, the folks at Commonwealth. Matthew Jessup joins us. He's the CEO and managing partner of Jessup Wealth Management. So, Matthew, you've been in this business a, a long time. You started at UBS Wealth Management. Correct. Then you go off to form your own firm. Why do you go off to form your own firm? And talk to us about, you know, what it was like building that business. So, Paul, when I got started in the business, that was back in the day of, you know, cold calling, right? Yep. You know, uh, smile and dial. And I was able to build, uh, you know, a client base. And in the late 2000s, you know, you go through the GFC, you know, the last thing I wanted to worry about is the custodian where my money was held. And, you know, being independent had uh, gave me the ability to invest money the way I wanted and grow the business uh, in my fashion. And it's worked out really well over the years. We're over managing over 300 million of assets, over 400 households across the, the U.S. So how do you build that business? What are some of the tools you use to, to, to build that business? So, you know, a lot of it is going to be word of mouth and referrals. I do it old school now these days. You know, the days of smile and dialing is obviously over. But, uh, you know, if you look at, you know, how the business has grown, it's mainly through that word of mouth through our entire client base. Um, in terms of uh, what you do to get your message out there beyond word of mouth, um, I'm thinking about, Social media, posting on Twitter, for example. Yes. Bailey was just talking yes. about uh, putting charts up there. Or maybe even go going a little bit further, a YouTube account or a podcast. What do you think are the um, best bang for your buck ways to, to spread the word? Matt, great question. For us, it's going to be our podcast. So we started the Independent Advisors podcast. Uh, we've been doing it for 222 consecutive weeks. Uh, <laughs> each of those podcasts lasts about 30, 40 minutes. And what we do is a really good job of educating our client base and potential clients. You know, we're going to talk about big news and headlines over the past week. We're going to highlight, you know, uh, tweets or X's, articles and research. And then we do financial planning topics of the week. And this was uh, started with me and my business partner, Mark McEvely, who is our firm's uh, chief investment officer. So what, what do you find that your clients need the most these days? I mean, you, if you kind of just lose yourself in social media or in the news, it can be dizzying. So, I mean, what, how do you try to get your, your clients to focus on? You know, at the end of the day, it's helping them meet their long-term financial goals in avoiding the short-term noise. And if we, if we um, look at the market day-to-day -day and react to that, we're going to get them off base. 
And so I think we do a good job putting the news headlines into perspective. You know, let's take geopolitics as an example. You know, if an investor was waiting for the absence of geopolitics, they never own stocks. Right. And so I think we do a good job managing and balancing what they're seeing day to day in the markets, Paul, and managing that with their long term goals. So how do they think? I mean, everybody's different. Or everybody's got different goals here. When you start off the conversation, kind of where would you like to take them for, for most of these people? Is a 60 40 portfolios still the place to start or is there a different place? You know, for a lot of retirees, I think that's fine. You know, I think that the 60-40 due to the way the market was in 2022 is getting a bad rap lately. Yep. We don't think it's dead. You know, I think ultimately uh, the way our firm manages money, we don't sub anything out mainly to third parties. We're using individual securities. We do our own research and we have our in own in-house trader. And right now, I know we're going to get to it in a little bit. You know, we're, we're overweight equities right now. We have a different contrarian view than Wall Street right now. Why? Well, ultimately, we think that Wall Street is, is too pessimistic right now. I think when you look at a lot of the indicators, Matt, it could be everything from investor sentiment, or you look at a lot of the extreme ratios we've seen over the past year, I think the market can't get around the fact that stocks can do good in higher interest rate environments. You know, NYU did a great study that looked at four variables, rising rates, falling rates, rising interest rates falling uh, with inflation on the other two variables. And when you look at those and all those scenarios of falling interest rates um, and, and inflation, ultimately stocks only do bad in one of the three, and that is uh, going to be a rising inflationary environment. And ultimately, we are seeing inflation come down. It's not going to come down every month. We know that data point just recently. But we're making a lot of headway, and these Fed rate hikes take time to work themselves through the system. Yeah, fair enough. Hey, I want to want to know about your take on the long end of the curve here. I think a lot more people have been learning about it. Certainly, we've seen massive inflows to TLT, which is a twenty-year-plus bond fund ETF. Uh, and yep. And one of the things that that I think people are are noticing is small moves in yield. Um, contribute to very big moves in principle on the long end. But a lot of yes. your investors, a lot of your clients may be looking at, say, the 30-year at four and three-quarters percent and saying, I don't care about moves in the principal over the time because I'm going to hold this to maturity. Um, those rates look juicy. Are they going to look juicy when we look back in 10, 15 years? Well, Matt, I would kind of take the other side of it. Right now, we're on the short end of the curve because the big concern for us is Ultimately, rates are going to come down, we feel, over the next couple of years. And what we're going to look for is a definitive move in consistency before we start locking in some of those longer-term rates. Now, I don't think I'm unique in that feeling, ultimately, but I think at a certain point, owning individual bonds for our clients takes away a, a lot of the risk that you just mentioned, sir. All right. So, Matthew, talk to us about some younger investors. How do you go out and try to attract younger investors? Um, because a lot of folks are just concerned that maybe they're not saving enough early enough. Maybe they're not because they have a lot of challenges, whether it's student debt or uh, other things. How do you approach some of the younger investors out there? Great question, Paul. So uh, you and uh, Matt were just talking about, you know, presence on social media. You know, if you look at these next generational investors, they're looking towards professionals that can guide them and provide that advice. But they want to connect on a personal level. You know, uh, I'm at a firm where I'm the oldest team member in my young 40s. <laughs> so what's great is I've built up, me and Mark have built up a great team that can sit down one-on-one -on -one with these younger investors who can relate to them, right, to their goals that they're dealing with. And so I think that's a good thing is that ultimately, 
we can relate on a one-to-one -one basis in multiple levels. And what do you think they did? Do they want anything different in their investments than maybe some of the, I don't know, the baby boomers or just some of the older investors? Great question, Paul. They're more risk averse, believe it or not. Oh, okay. So what we find out is that you know investors in their 20s and 30s, they're not having experience yet in investing into equities. And so what we see at a lot of times is we are spending a lot of time educating them, Paul, up front on risk, reward, volatility, goals and objectives. Because ultimately, with the time horizon they have, they're going to be very much benefited by having that equity exposure. But then we have to get them past those day-to-day -day and month-to-month -month headlines that might derail that bigger uh, plan, if you think of it And that it's way. interesting. I mean, uh, the younger investors now, fixed income is actually an option. There's a, a generation of people who have had nothing but zero interest rates that have had to go out and take more and more risk, whether it's equities or alternatives. Now, fixed income can really be a percentage of your portfolio. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, going back to Matt's point about at some point, you know, you've got to start thinking about locking in some longer term rates. While we have these great short term rates, you've got to go out and enjoy that. It's time to harvest. Um, but at a certain point, I think over the next, say, you know, six to 12 months, looking at longer durations is probably going to make a lot of sense. What are you, what are you hoping to gain from this uh, week here at, uh, at this conference? First and foremost, easy question, networking with my peers. Yep. That's where I get a lot of good information, best practices. You know, we're not here to reinvent the wheel. And so um, I have a good group of like-minded individuals that we network with. We have a great study group of about 10 other advisors that me and my business partner, Mark, uh, we meet with, and we share and get a lot of good ideas on how to run our practices. All right, Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Matthew Jessup, he's the CEO and managing partner, Jessup Wealth Management. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We're broadcasting live from Commonwealth's 2023 National Financial Advisors Conference at the Gaylord Rockies Resort in Aurora, California. Today we're joined with our host here, Brad McMillan. He's the CIO, that's Chief Investment Officer uh, for Commonwealth. Uh, Brad, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us out here in, in Denver. Appreciate it. So I see a bunch of your clients walking around here, registered investment advisors. When you sit down and talk with them and mingle with them, what's what are some of their biggest concerns here as they try to figure out how to navigate these markets on behalf of their clients? There's a couple of things that are really dominating the conversation right now. One is inflation. We see it coming down, but, you know, there's a real fear. Is it going to go back up? Is it going to go back to normal levels? And what are normal levels anyway? So that's one thing, and very closely tied to that is interest rates. And you just had Matt Jessup on here, you know, talking about how rates are evolving. And we have, you know, very good short-term rates right now, and people love that. But is that going to last? You know, how is that going to change? So how do we navigate the significant shift in the fiscal and monetary structure. It's a real challenge. So what are we uh, what are some of the uh, the big issues here? I mean, I think we we heard some we had some earnings today from some of the big yep. banks this morning and it seems like pretty solid out there. I mean, it uh, 
you know, they had some good loan growth. They had some good net interest markets. Some of their uh, capital markets businesses are pretty, pretty strong. So at least looking just from today's companies reporting, it looks like the economy is in decent shape. Does that c- coincide with how you guys think about it? It does, because we've had a lot of talk over the past year, 18 months, about how we're going to have a recession, and a recession is inevitable, and the world is coming to an end, and so forth and so on. What we've been saying consistently is we see an economy driven by the consumer, and we th- see the consumer getting more jobs at higher wages. You know, when you have when you have this kind of job growth, and we've just seen that is not softened, yep, really. No. We just saw the most recent data. You know, when you have this kind of job growth, when we have this kind of in wage growth, when we this have this kind of spending ability growth, we don't see a recession. So when you look at the earnings expectations, they're kind of based on that recession thesis. And we just don't see that. And I think, as you say, today's data, the banks are doing okay because people are out there spending. My Companies concern is that my concern is that people are outspending uh, their income because uh, we have seen wage growth, but it has not kept up with inflation. So prices are rising faster than people's paychecks. And um, you can see that everywhere when you look at the affordability of homes, of cars, of gasoline, all the things that the Fed doesn't really necessarily want to put into the core inflation category, right? But the things that we need, um, excess savings have been uh, spent off. People are putting much more in terms of um, payments on credit cards. They're also delinquent on those credit cards at a higher rate, delinquent on auto loans, which are too much for them to afford at a higher rate. And they've got to start paying back student loans, which they haven't been doing for a couple of years. Doesn't the consumer worry you? The consumer does worry me, and everything you've pointed out is a, are real issues. But at the same time, what you t- what, when you look at the data, we have think, gotten worse than we've been over the past year, and that's true. But we're still better than we have been, you know, at typical points previously in the cycle. So we still have some running room here. I mean, things are softening. We're seeing consumers maybe start to pull back a little bit. And certainly interest rates are having an effect. There's no doubt about that. But the flip side of this is a lot of people own homes with low mortgages locked in. Their spending is not going to be affected by interest rates. So there's another side to the story. But are things slowing? Absolutely. Does that mean we're going to have a recession anytime soon? I don't see it in the data. All right. So what do you want this Federal Reserve to do? We're going to, you know, I mean, it's they've been very, very clear and very aggressive in fighting inflation and, rise, and raising interest rates. What do you think they're going to do over the next several meetings? I think they've gotten to where they need to be. When you look at the inflation numbers, they're going to be trending down, if only because of housing. We know how the housing numbers are going to trend. They're going to trend down. We should see inflation in the three, three and a half range by the end of the year. That being the case, when you look at the surge in 10-year yields, that's already done a significant amount of the tightening. You know, if the Fed wants rates to be in the five range for the 10-year, hey, guess what? We're about there. So they have little, if anything, more to do. I expect them to keep talking hawkishly because that's what the Fed does. You know, but I don't see a need to raise rates much further, if at all. All right. So given that backdrop here, as you talk to some of these RIAs, I mean, are you sensing that now's the time to get a little bit more aggressive here? Maybe, you know, maybe increase your equity allocation, maybe go out a little bit more in duration in your fixed income portfolio? We are talking a little bit in going out in the equity and the duration of the um, portfolio. You know, as Matt was talking about a minute ago, now is the time to lock in some rates. Yeah, you can get more 
you know, on a current basis. But at the same time, that's going to change. So if I'm looking to lock in a longer-term liability and I can get, you know, 4, 8, 4, 9%, that's a great long-term yield to lock in. And I think you're going to start seeing that with insurance companies, for example. As far as equities go, I'm not as pessimistic. I'm still optimistic on equities going forward. I think we have some opportunity for some earnings outperformance. We talked about that. I think valuations, most of the hit has already been taken from rising rates. So I do think there's some optimism there. I am a little bit concerned at the index level when you look at the vulnerability to the seven major yep. stocks. So, you know, individual stocks, yeah, I think there's a running room for a lot of them, but we might see some volatility at the index level. What is your outlook in terms of rate cuts? I mean, if you're optimistic on the economy um, and, and not too worried anymore about rising rates, um, do you see them being held at this level for much longer? Or do you think that the Fed cuts rates for any particular reason next year? You know, it's interesting. A lot of people are calling for rate cuts, and I think that's the wrong question. I don't think we should be asking, when does the Fed cut rates? I think the, que the question has to be, why would the Fed cut rates? They are at a level that historically is normal. you know. And I think one of Powell's overriding objectives is to restore normality to the market. So he's there. So what would make them cut rates? If, in, if, in, if inflation were to rise again, they're going to raise rates. If inflation goes down to normal and they don't have to cut rates, why would they cut rates? The only thing that really might make them cut rates is a severe recession. And as I said, I don't see that. So I don't see any rate cuts for probably at least through next year. All right. So I guess one of the other, when you speak to the, some of your RIAs here, are you telling them maybe like some of the sectors you guys like, like, I'm, you know, I'm still bullish on tech or I think there's still room in energy. How do you kind of frame that discussion? Generally speaking, we're not tactical investors, but at the same time, we do recognize that, for example, small cap has outperformed over the past several years. Value has outperformed over the past several years. And we look at that and we know why that is, and we see you know, potential catalysts for more outperformance going forward. So we do have some overweights in those spaces. You know, when people talk about vulnerabilities, we've already talked about the Magnificent Seven there. I think there's a chance that we might see a repricing of that as we see higher yielding investments um, like value stocks start to become more stable. In other words, I think we're going to see a rotation. We've seen some outperformance in large growth. I think the reverse of that is due to do some catch up. All right. We're out here in Colorado. I feel like it's kind of energy country. What's your energy call here? I mean, with these energy stocks. The interesting thing is, when you look at energy, you're basically talking about the oil and gas prices. Yep. And that is not that has gone up a bit, but it hasn't really gone up that much. And I think the real tell here is what's happened in the Middle East. We haven't seen oil prices spike to any significant degree. Yep. And that tells me a couple of things. First of all, there's a perception out there, right or wrong, that this is not going to be a wider war. Second of all, that we have the U.S. production as a stabilizer now, and I think we just hit an all-time high for production. So the U.S. oil industry is continuing to do very well, and that's stabilizing prices. So I'm not sure I see too much upside from prices. I do think we're going to see consolidation, as we just saw with the Exxon deal. So, you know, yep. it's very much an industry in flux. I think I'm not sure there's a lot of outperformance going forward there. All right, Brad. Thanks so much for joining us. Brad McMillan, uh, he is the CIO of Commonwealth, the host of 
of this gig out here in Aurora, Colorado. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We're broadcasting live from Commonwealth's 2023 National Financial Advisors Conference at the Gaylord Rockies Resort in Aurora, Colorado. Matt, tons of big banks reporting earnings this morning. You know who we need to talk to is Allison Williams. Yeah, absolutely. Um, our number one go-to source on the big banks. Allison is here with me in the Interactive Broker Studio. And what a morning we've had in terms of earnings. Um, we had uh, BlackRock come out. We had Wells Fargo come out. JP Morgan, PNC Financial, and City. All of them beat, at least on the bottom line, Allison. What stands out to you? So uh, maybe I'll start with BlackRock. They were the first to report. They had a rare quarter of outflows, but it really was tied to low fee institutional. So we think that there's limited earnings impacts there. So we're, we're less worried about them. From the three big banks, beats. So net interest income coming in better than expected. I would say this is consistent with a lot of the optimism that we felt in late September. Um, the issue really, though, for the banks is 2024. So we're happy that the uh, there's upside to 4Q. We have a higher run rate entering next year, but with expectations that previously suggested the Fed could be cutting soon. Now that's being pushed out. We're even talking about hikes that uh, poses risk to the outlook. On the other side of things, credit. I mean, wow, the credit beat at JP Morgan was, was pretty tremendous. We uh, Analysts expected about a billion dollars of reserve building. They actually had a net release. Um, so the better economy, better than expected, right? Like a year ago, we were talking about recession. The economy's coming better, there's rate risk, but the credit is, uh, is also holding up better. So I wonder what what they're making in terms of rates on an average loan compared to what they're paying Correct. in terms of average rates. <laughs> like, I know on a checking account, you're going to get like 0.2%. And if you need a mortgage, it's going to be 8%. So that's a killer spread. Right. So what we've seen in the past year, you know, a year ago, we were talking about higher rates are good because we saw the yield. Um, as you said, what, what customers are, are paying them when they borrow, that repriced pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and the deposit costs have come later. That's cutting into the net interest income, but not as much as expected. So uh, I think a lot of banks were excited in September or at least alluded to the fact that things were trending better, stabilizing. Um, again, the question is, you know, d does that sort of reinvigorate as with, and funding costs go higher? Well, if, we, we thought after we SVB um, that there would be, you know, a big uh, war for deposits and that costs would rise, but it really hasn't happened, has it? Well, it, yeah, it hasn't. Ha I mean, it has to some extent. So we did see further increases in deposit costs, but at a slowing rate. So investors are, are always sort of looking for that, that second derivative. And so that's where we're getting the positive news. The other thing I would point to is um, good cost control. Uh, we did see higher than expected costs at Wells Fargo, but part of that was severance, so that, that could imply um, a better run rate for costs. They do have some good efficiency measures. JP Morgan, their car costs coming in better than expected. That guidance, um, again, also better than expected. 
um, you know, loans is the one area that was a little bit weaker than we thought a few months ago in terms of commercial loans. But what these big banks are benefiting from is card. So JP Morgan, Citigroup, you know, aside from Capital One, they uh, have some of the biggest uh, card exposures out there. Bank of America, Wells Fargo, to a lesser extent, but still better than those regional banks. And so I think the loan, the loan portfolios and the net interest income trends might not, uh, you know, necessarily repeat for those regionals. Hey, Allison, commercial real estate. What are the banks saying about the commercial real estate exposure? Is this going to be a problem for them? It is going to be a problem, but it's, you know, it's it's overwhelmed this quarter. I think by all the positives that I talked about, but. Uh, most significantly, Wells Fargo, they're the biggest commercial real estate lender. They had said in September that, you know, a year ago, 18 months ago, they were concerned about specific pockets and specific cities. Today, that risk has broadened out. Uh, they are taking uh, reserves. So we did see reserve building for office commercial real estate. On the other side of that, you know, uh, JP Morgan taking a reserve release in home mortgage. Um, so we're seeing reserves for commercial real estate in office. We're seeing reserves for card. As I said, there's growth there, so they're reserving for that. Um, but we're seeing some offset. Um, you know, JP Morgan talked about some of their economic assumptions changing, and that um, is really the driver in terms of the provisions coming in better than expected. And at the same time, Jamie, Jamie Dimon says these are the most dangerous times right. in decades. I guess he's talking more about geopolitical risk than he is about the economy. I think he's talking broadly, but it, it's it, it's at the margin, right? So their assumptions are a bit better, but they're still conservative. So they still are, um, I guess, writing more conservatively, but maybe a less, little bit less worried than they were last quarter. And I think Jamie's comments go to, you know, the fact that we're, we really are in unprecedented times for a big reason. And, and to me, I think the biggest factor is, you know, We've never seen uh, central bank balance sheets um, have this huge buildup. We don't know what that unwind is going to look like. And I'd be surprised if we didn't get a surprise, right? We, no one knows what that's going to look like. And so this is a very different cycle. Again, the consumer, very different cycle. Normally, we would not be seeing card growth fueling these banks. We would um, That in itself has to be a concern, right? That means that more and more consumers are putting more stuff on credit cards, and they're not paying their balance off right away. So they're rolling them over, even though interest rates on credit cards are extremely high. So at, at this point, it's more about they're growing loans, and so they want to reserve for it. Card, it is normalizing, but yeah. still very, it, it is normalizing, but still very, very strong, I would say. The one thing that, to watch for for consumer is that spending is slowing, but they're still using up those uh, deposit balances. Allison, great talking to you as usual. Allison Williams runs our bank coverage uh, here at Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. 
Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I'm here in New York City, capital of the world. Thank you very much uh, for that, Paul. And we want to talk about, um, you know, what you do in markets when there's so much going on um, from geopolitical issues like the Hamas attacks in Israel. And, of course, we're all waiting for the um, counterattack to uh issues that we face here in the U.S., like um, Steve Scalise can't even work with the Republicans, so he drops out of the run um, for Speaker of the House. Uh, that's likely going to lead to or could likely lead to a uh, government shutdown. But we also need funding for Israel and Ukraine. And then you've got massive swings in the bond market. Yesterday, I think the 30-year uh uh, bond moved by like 20 basis points, and that caused moves in the equity indexes and everything else as well. Let's go to Jared, Jared Dillian. He is an investment strategist at Malden Economics, also editor of the Daily Dirt Nap. And um, Jared, what do you make of, of these markets? I guess probably the rates moves are the most interesting Yeah, the rates moves are definitely the most interesting, and thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of bond bears uh, a week or two ago, and there's a lot less today with uh, the war in the Middle East. Um, it's, you know, I think the trend reached just absolute exhaustion. Um, people I saw forecasts for 5% on tens, five and a half, six percent People were extrapolating the trend forever. You know, we came in on Monday morning and we had a completely different world um, and in an environment where you have huge geopolitical tensions, you know, really what you're looking to do is do things like buy bonds, buy gold, buy oil and probably sell stocks and buy volatility. Well, I mean, how hard is it to deal in a bond market when you have this kind of volatility do you just stick to the front end or what what's your take so i actually i personally have a, a pretty large position in the front end um and you know just yesterday we had a whole parade of or i guess it was two days ago we had a parade of fed speakers who said that we pretty much eliminated the last rate hike and what that did was that really started the clock on when the first rate cut is going to be and generally after a rate hike cycle you there's not a lot of time before the fed begins cutting rates again the longest that the fed has been able to maintain rates at the highest level was at seven months and that was back in 2007 so i think we're going to be getting we're, we're going to be talking about rate rate cuts within the next few months Hey, Jared, I was just looking through your notes you provided. And one of the things that really jumped out at me was your point here that shorter work weeks will cause lower economic growth. We won't see 3 to 4% GDP growth again. That's a big statement. Tell us what you're thinking there. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really output is a function of work. It's a function of uh, how hard you work and how long you work and how productively you work. I mean, if you don't, if we collectively as a country, if we work less, we will have less output and GDP will go down. I don't think that's a really controversial statement. I think I think a lot of people want to have their cake and eat it, too. I think that, 
you know, we we think that we can have a 32-hour work week or a three-and-a-half-day work week and still maintain the same output and the same level of prosperity and standard of living, but it's just not possible. And what's going to happen is, is that when we as a society start to value leisure time over work and productivity, then we start to look a little bit more like Europe, which has had growth, you know, a pretty, cl- pretty, pretty close to zero over the last 15 years. But it's lovely. I'm here to tell you, having just lived in uh, Germany for the last six years, um, it's it's much less stressful. Uh, what about the what about the downside, Jared? I mean, if we don't grow three to four percent, does that mean we also uh, won't have big recessions, or do we have to deal with big recessions without the growth? Well, I mean, the interesting thing is is that the U.S. has really leapfrogged. Uh, most Western countries in terms of wealth in the last 15, 20 years. I mean, our per capita GDP is about $60,000 and throughout Europe, it kind of ranges between 35 and $45,000. I mean, you know, the United States has become fabulously wealthy. It is more stressful. You know, I'm stressed out. I work pretty much all the time. You know, I work a full day and I go home and I sit on the couch and I do more work. And that's kind of what we do as a culture. Yeah, me too, pretty much. Uh, it's, it's a little bit of a bummer, but I actually, I like work. Um, not everyone uh, is that lucky. Talk to me about your view of uh, the economy and, and, and the, the slowing that we're seeing here, because um, you, you talk about having your cake and eat it too. Paul wants to see a, a soft landing and lower rates. Well, somebody told me early in my career, like 20 years ago, that there's no such thing as a soft landing. But having said that, um, you know, we've been on recession watch ever since the curve inverted 16 months ago, 16 months ago, the yield curve inverted. So we've been on recession watch ever since then. And we haven't had a recession yet. Uh, I believe that we will. I don't believe that it will be severe. Um, and certainly not on the scale of what happened in 2008, which is really the last real recession that we got. We had uh, we had a technical recession during the pandemic in the early days of the pandemic, and we had a little bit of a slowdown in 2015. But we haven't really had the downside of the business cycle in 15 years, and a lot of people have forgotten what that feels like. Now, what's happening right now is that the yield curve is steepening pretty quickly. And as you know, when the yield curve inverts, it signals that a recession is going to happen. And when the yield curve steepen, it is actually happening. So we should be seeing signs of that relatively soon. Hey, Jared, talk to us about your your thoughts on oil here. It's had a lot of near-term volatility here due to some geopolitical issues, certainly over the last week and over the last several months. Um, What's your maybe intermediate to longer-term call on oil? Uh, I don't think that I have a really strong opinion. I mean, there's the people who um, work in the energy space full time. The you know the axiom is that you generally want to fade geopolitical events. Uh, I my memory of this is pretty hazy, but there was something that happened in Iran uh, three or four years ago where oil spiked and that was the high, and it never came back to that level again. I think this time is a little bit different. Um, You know, the conflict in Israel really opens up a whole bunch of possibilities of things that could go wrong. Um, I think, you know, if you were a trader 
buying some far upside calls in oil might not be a bad idea. Um, we could walk in one morning, it could be 20% higher, you know, based on uh, Iran's involvement or something like that. So um, in the short term, I'm definitely bullish. Isn't this time different for everything? Allison Williams was just telling me um, about Jamie Dimon's comments on world danger and saying, you know, we're in an unprecedented situation in terms of Fed balance sheets. And I was thinking we've been in an unprecedented situation for like 15 years. <laughs> That's always the case. That's always the case. Um, you know, it was funny. I was uh, I was on Twitter the other day and my friend Porter Collins, who's one of the figures in the big short movie, uh, he's a friend of mine, and he tweeted that uh, the end of quantitative tightening is probably near. Um, you know, we've been rolling off the balance sheet for the last year, year and a half. And, you know, it's it hasn't really helped uh, the situation with rates, because when the Fed's selling three to five billion of treasuries every day, like it puts a lot of pressure on the yield curve. Mm. But I think I thought that was a pretty smart comment. Uh, I think it is. I think it is likely that we will end QT sometime in the near future. All right, Jared. Thank you so much for joining us, Jared. I really appreciate it. Jared Dillian, he's investment strategist at Malden uh, Economics. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Uh, we are broadcasting live from Commonwealth's 2023 National Financial Advisors Conference at the Gaylord Rockies Resort in Aurora, Colorado. Uh, joining me uh, right now, we're right here at the conference, and it's very nice. I can show you the results. Uh, Karen McCall joins us. She's Senior Vice President of Wealth Management at Commonwealth, joins us. Karen, we've seen a lot of the you know investment advisors milling around here over the past couple of days. What's kind of what do they really need from you guys as they try to manage their business? They've got retail clients, they've got compliance issues, they've got back office issues. I think a lot of them just want to interact with their clients. What what do you what do you hear from them? Um, in terms of our advisors, Paul, is that yeah, um, yeah. exactly yeah. So um, this national conference, this is a great opportunity to bring our community together. Um, we have over two thousand advisors all over the country, and they really enjoy coming together in a community like this, um, we have the opportunity to really share with them the things that we're doing in in the home office. Um, we basically, in wealth management, we exist uh, to, to help the advisors attract, retain, and grow assets. We serve as an extension of their practice, and we're really there to assist them. Um, their clients' needs are becoming more and more complex every day, and um, each advisor cannot be an expert in, in every realm that, that uh, is necessary for, for a client. So we're there to help them, to bring that subject matter expertise, to help them navigate that complexity, to uh, be able to, to choose the right products for clients' needs. Talk to us about high net worth, ultra high net worth kind of yes. people. It seems like we're getting more and more of those. How do you kind of adapt to some of your, your you know the RAs clients actually getting bigger yes that's absolutely happening 
our advisors are seeing that on a daily basis. Um, we're seeing uh, lots of opportunities to work with clients at that $5 million threshold and above, and even at that ultra high net worth, which we define at $20 million and above. And you can imagine that at those asset uh, levels, there are uh, all, sort, all sorts of needs that come into play. It's not just the investment portfolio. It's not just thinking through the asset allocation and, and the underlying manager selection, but you're also having to bring expertise around tax strategies and protection strategies, how to use uh, some insurance products, for example. We also can help them with um, estate planning, uh, bring in legal experts where we need to so it's um, the way that we've done it is really we stood up an entirely new service within Commonwealth called Private Client. And when our advisors utilize that service, a team of experts from all the realms across wealth management come together to work with that advisor so that we are addressing all of the dimensions of that client's needs. You know, Paul mentioned that it seems like there's an increasing amount of high net worth individuals. Do you see that in your business as well? Are more and more people very rich and need to invest? <laughs> yeah. Yes, which is a good problem to have. Um, we are absolutely seeing more and more wealthy clients come. Um, a, a place where, where we're seeing this is uh, we have a lot of, our, our advisors have a lot of business owner clients. Mm -hmm. And as they sell businesses, um, their financial picture changes radically from one day to the next. And we want to make sure that our advisors are ready to, to deal with that, to be able to address the needs of an existing client that suddenly comes into an enormous amount of wealth. How about alternative investments? Um, I've heard some some of these advisors say, you know, over the last couple of years, they've heard they've been asked a lot more by their clients about private equity, hedge funds, yes. private credit. How has that been growing as part of their their business? We've seen um, a, a heightened demand for alternatives as well, and so. At Commonwealth, we have a team that's dedicated to the alternative space that really focuses there and has that expertise and is helping our advisors um, utilize those those solutions in the best way possible. We also recently entered a partnership with a company called iCapital, which yep. is basically a platform of hedge funds, private equity, private debt, and our advisors um, are, are reacting very well to that and, and increasingly utilizing the platform. How helpful is this so conference? Is it, how helpful is this okay. conference to you, Karen? What are you doing there? This conference is incredibly helpful. I spent a lot of time in conversations with advisors. I had the opportunity yesterday to update um, the entire group on all of the initiatives that we have in wealth management. And I think it really drums up excitement when they hear about things that we're doing, like our virtual paraplanner program, which allows them to delegate a lot of the financial planning that they're, they're, that, that they're doing. We also have the opportunity to promote things like our custom trading services, which allows portfolio which allows advisors that want to serve as portfolio managers to outsource some of the more administrative tasks like the monitoring, oversight, and trading to our team of experts. So that really allows them to free up time to be able to spend with their clients. All right, Karen, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And I know Paul really appreciates being out at that conference as well. Karen McCall, Senior <laughs> VP at, uh, of Wealth Management at Commonwealth, uh, talking to us about her business, uh, today's investment environment, and the conference um, that they are hosting out there in Colorado. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon. Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
We're down here, you know, we're out here, I should say, Matt. We're out here in uh, Aurora, Colorado. We're broadcasting live from Commonwealth 2023 National Financial Advisors Conference. We're at the Gaylord Rockies Resort Hotel in Aurora. I look up at the mountains, and there is snow up there, Matt, at the highest elevations. I'm heading up to Breckenridge in just minutes, so I'll be able to report back on some real-time uh, conditions there. Let's go to our next guest here at the conference, Sam uh, Sam Millett. He's a director of fixed income at Commonwealth. He joins us. Sam, thanks so much for making your way over to the Bloomberg uh, remote booth here. Let's talk about fixed income here. I mean, we've got a Federal Reserve that appears to be at or near peak rates. How do you expect, I don't know, the next 12 months to unfold in terms of what the Fed does uh, with interest rates? Hey, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. Um, it's a great question. It's definitely been on the mind of our advisors here at this conference. You know, I like to listen to the Fed when they try to tell us what they're saying mm -hmm. and what they're planning to do. So I believe they're going to be very data dependent at the upcoming meetings. Looking at, um, you know, interest rate probabilities, I'd say that most likely it seems like we're probably going to keep flat at this most, uh, uh, the upcoming Fed meeting. But, you know, going forward from there, we're just going to have to watch the data. All right. So, I mean, I think the, as you're, when you talk to your registered investment advisors here, what are you suggesting that they do? What, they, what do you suggest they tell their clients about kind of their allocation to fixed income? Where should they go? What kind of duration? All that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So we've really had um, kind of a bias towards higher quality throughout the course of this year. And that's really resonated with a lot of our advisors. Um, additionally, you know, I think the duration question has been, you know, front and center on everyone's mind after the last couple of years. And looking at most of our advisors, many of them entered the year with um, relatively low durations compared to their benchmarks. Therefore, seeing them move a little bit closer, higher up in duration, get to market rate duration, has really been the key. What do you think about um, the current state of the 30-year? I mean, yesterday we saw it jump 20 basis points, and that's not the first time we've seen this extreme volatility. Is that here to stay? Yeah, I think it's definitely been a pretty big move in the past couple of weeks when you're looking at long-term rates. I do believe that there's a likelihood we'll see them come down a bit over the course of the next few months. But, you know, ultimately, I think it's very difficult to call the direction of rates when you go any further than that. How about the, you know, I'm a, I don't mind taking a little risk out there. I mean, mm -hmm. should I be thinking about, you know, the high-yield market? Because if I look at the returns year-to-date across the fixed income spectrum, the only place where I see positive returns is in high yield, and it's kind of surprising to me because again, the, the recession talk is pretty mm -hmm. pretty prevalent out there. Is it uh, should I be out there thinking about high yield uh, debt here as opposed to just kind of sitting where I am now with my two-year Treasury at five percent? Yeah, I think you know when you look at high yields, the performance this year has been exemplary. It's really stood out, especially compared to most um, sectors within fixed income. With that being said, we do have some concerns about valuation levels. You know, you look at historical spreads in the high-yield space, and frankly, they seem to be relatively low if you're expecting some sort of economic slowdown in the year ahead, which gives us a little bit of pause when we hear questions about, should I be moving from relatively, um, you know, credit-safe and shorter-duration assets like a two-year treasury out into the high-yield space? Because, you know, frankly, I think that there's a really um, big shift in risk that you're taking when you do that trade, and you have to be aware of the fact that, uh, you know, that can work against you if you jump, jump too soon. Well, Matt, Matt gets on me, my co-host Matt Miller, because I'm sitting here in two and a half, a two two-year Treasury's getting five percent, but he keeps telling me I have to worry about reinvestment risk. Mm -hmm. 
So what do you tell? True, you've been in those for, a, for saying, already boy, for I'm, a year. I'm, you only got a year left, Paul. I know. I've only got. <laughs> I got to start thinking about it. And uh, so the question is, I mean, what do you tell your advisors here about you know maybe sitting here in this two-year paper or you know you can even get a cd these mm -hmm. days you can you know uh, le uh savings account which my 27 year old daughter did which was very good on her part i'm very <laughs> proud of that um versus going out maybe a little bit more duration taking out some of that reinvestment risk yeah i've definitely uh had that conversation a lot with our advisors because that's something their clients are asking them for a lot you know one year to two years cds and treasuries have been extremely popular the only thing that we caution with that is, you know, the idea of a lot of these um, client requests for this paper, they come in and say, I want to lock in yields at a, at a high rate right now. Yep. And while you certainly can for a year or two, you know, if you look at longer term uh, interest rate projections, including those directly from the Federal Reserve, you know, it seems quite likely that those will not be available for reinvestment at similar rates two years from now. Right. All right, Matt, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks so uh, much. Uh, uh, so Sam. we're just kind of getting the lay of the land there on the fixed income space. And we did that with Sam Millett. Uh, he joins us uh, here at the conference here in Aurora, California. That's Sam Millett, Director of Fixed Income at Commonwealth. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Matt was saying there, there, there's a, a lot of stuff out there for you and, uh, you know, the litigation folks and the antitrust folks to really focus on. The most recent deal I wanted to get your opinion on was Exxon Pioneer. Um, you know, it's a big deal. How do you think the regulators are going to look at that? You know, I think that deal is going to get scrutiny. You know, you said it's a big deal. It involves Exxon. It's a sensitive area, oil and gas. Um, but but I think in the end, it's probably okay. I, I don't see how the FTC challenges it. I mean, this is really a combination in the Permian Basin where there's a lot of competition still, a lot of other biggies. And most of the company's holdings in this area, which is called the basin, it actually comprises several basins, are not really all that close to each other. Um, and, and combined, they'd have about 15%. So I think it's going to get some scrutiny, and it could take some time. But I, I think eventually this will get cleared. But I, I wonder why uh, the FTC seems – I mean, why can we count on them to oppose big M&A? What, what's the idea behind that? You know, I think that essentially this is an FTC that sort of has a generally – I don't like to say this because uh, it, it really shouldn't be this way. And they say they'll deny this, but they really gen tend to think that big is bad. You know, the bigger the company, the more power it has, the more dominance it has, the more ability it has to engage in anti-competitive actions that could harm consumers, that could harm labor, that could have all sorts of different harms. That sounds and like a fair take, actually. I mean – in the abstract, right? Well, in the abstract, that's the thing. In the abstract, it could be a fair take, but you really have to look at these deals one by one. Because if you take the position that any big deal is bad, that any kind of mer merger and consolidation is bad, what you're not thinking about are those deals that can be pro-competitive and can have efficiencies and can ultimately be actually be good for consumers, right? So you're really just discounting any of that. Uh, and it's kind of just a blanket application across the board that simply may not be the case. It may very well be the case for some of the deals that they're looking at now um, and some of the deals they've tried to block and actually have been able to block in the past. But I just think that it, to look at everything across the board that way probably is a mistake. I wonder how Microsoft Activision, I mean, by the way, that deal's completed. It's yes, done. It's, it's not done. like they're looking to close it. 
It's closed. It's done. It's closed. Um, but if I think about it, you know, Microsoft, a gigantic behemoth mm-hmm. um, that owns the Xbox, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of two video game platforms has now bought the maker of Call of Duty, right. the most important video game that exists, <laughs> right? So, I mean, they're vertically integrating. They're vertically integrating. They were vertically integrated already. They're vertically integrating more. But at the end of the day, it comes down to what the economics of this deal shows. It, it, is, it, is there an ability and incentive by Microsoft to keep all those Activision games to itself and not supply these games to their distribution competitors um, to forego the licensing fees that they would get from that, that to have the customer bad will of gamers that you know have the other um, options and would like to play the game and now can't um, which side is better for them and what was proven in court was that it didn't make sense financially in the long run for Microsoft to withhold these games from its competitors that's essentially what the judge found right more people uh, play video games on PlayStation than Xbox Sony's PlayStation and they're definitely they definitely want to play Call of Duty on that platform. Exactly. And if Microsoft didn't allow them, um, that they would be looking at a lot of lost revenue. No, that's right. And I also think that there's still if you look at market shares just in gaming, the companies that create, devise, and create and produce these games, there's still a lot of competition. You know, globally, Activision isn't one of the biggest players. Right. It has Call of Duty, which is a very popular game. But who's to say that there's not another game that's going to come along in a year or two or in five years True. that surpasses that? All right, let's go from gaming to supermarkets here. <laughs> What's the status of Kroger Albertsons? It's not looking good right now. <laughs> you know, the companies seem to be trying to play ball. They're talking about divesting stores in order to get antitrust clearance um, to a company called CNS. But it's looking like the FTC might end up suing. Uh, this was sort of what I thought early on. And it, now we've also heard that the California State AG is thinking about doing the same. Um, so it looks like if the companies want to get this closed, they're going to have to end up winning at court. That doesn't seem, I mean, it seems like an easy fix here just to say, hey, here's our geographic overlap and we'll divest these. Right, and that's essentially what the companies are doing. And because of that, Paul, I actually think they have a good shot at winning in court in front of a judge. But this particular FTC was very skeptical of remedies generally, um, any kind of remedy, whether it's structural like this, divesting stores, or, or whether it's just behavioral promises like Microsoft had offered up. And in this case, the FTC is particularly skeptical because there was a big grocery deal years ago uh, in which many stores were divested. This was Albertsons and Safeway, and it failed spectacularly. Uh, the buyer of the divested assets went bankrupt, and Albertsons ended up buying back a bunch of the stores that they were supposed to divest. So okay. there's particular skepticism in this industry that this can work. And this is a lot of stores. You're talking up to 600 to be divested to CNS, which is primarily a wholesaler. What are the other deals that we right, need to be watching right. out for, Jen? Well, look, we're going to trial uh, later this month in the JetBlue Spirit Challenge. I oh, know yeah. Paul has talked about that one a bit. He, he's skeptical <laughs> about that one. But that starts trial October 23rd. It's going to go about four weeks um, in Boston. So that's coming up. Um, and we still are kind of waiting around to see what happens with Adobe and Figma. This one's been dragging on, and the DOJ's been really quiet about it. Um, we know the UK and the EU are investigating that deal as well and ha- possibly have some concerns. Um, and the Department of Justice may be just sort of biding its time because the deal cannot close while the UK and the EU investigations are ongoing. But I tend to think there's going to be a lawsuit there too. 
All right, Jenry, uh, that's good business for the attorneys, if, if, if nobody else. <laughs> Jenry, she's a senior legal analyst. She covers the antitrust uh, business for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.